RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. We're a little snookered for time this morning, so we're going to leave the social media because I want to get to Grant Illingworth, KC. And this is really interesting. He has been thinking about the loose aspects surrounding the end-of-life statute. I was aware generally of the bill and what it meant and, and what it enabled people to do in terms of making a choice regarding end of life. But I wasn't aware of the details, and I think we should find out. So I'm reading from an RNZ story, which um, came up, posted, reported on the 15th of April 2019, regarding loopholes in the end of life choice bill, which was signed by 75 lawyers and academics. The bill was passed, I think, uh, in November 2019. And someone who's been doing a lot of thinking about this has written about it is well-known KC, now KC, used to be QC, now KC Grant Illingworth, who joins us to talk about this issue. Grant, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for making some time for us. Yes, hi. Good to be here. Does it feel different being a KC? (laughs) (laughs) Not particularly. (laughs) Got to remember to say it because QC became so common. She was there for so long, right? That's right, indeed. I think of Casey and the Sunshine Band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember the song. Well, shake your hips, whatever. Okay, so you delivered a paper at uh, a Law Society seminar in 2021. I, I've got it in front of me, which you say, um, well, you said at the time, might help to explain understanding of the act. It needs explaining? Yes, well, the, the situation is that um, by that stage, the... Uh, Uh, Act had been uh, passed into law uh, in full because initially it was only uh, to authorise a referendum and that referendum, obviously, uh, as we all now know, uh, was um, uh, a positive result for the proponents of the bill. Uh, And uh, so the, the substantive provisions of the Act became law. They are quite complex and probably difficult for the ordinary layperson to understand. Uh, it's important for lay people to understand the Act if their lives come into contact with it, um, but perhaps even more important for medical practitioners to understand it. There was a lot of euphoria, wasn't there, at the time of that referendum. Um, there seemed to be a demand, well, by the public to have this available to them. And do you think they really knew any of the detail? Uh, Well, um, I I very much doubt that the average voter would have understood uh, how many wrinkles and potential difficulties there are in the Act. Uh, And that is one of the reasons why I've tried to explain it, hopefully in words that ordinary people can understand and uh, as I say, especially for the benefit of medical practitioners who need to understand the legal requirements before they engage with the um, the matters that the Act requires them to engage with. You've made some points in the PDF presentation that I have in front of you that, you, um, that I spoke about just a moment ago. C- can we go through these points, if you don't mind? Of course, yes. Okay, so um, point A. 
The need for any court order or any requirement to demonstrate special military or law enforcement powers, I'll read them all out, or the need to rely on self-defense or the need to defend another person. Why have you, why have you mentioned those? Because under the old law, <clears throat> um, they were points that could justify um, the killing of another person. Um, you could rely on self-defense. You could rely on military law and, and for example, in the time uh, in a time of war, uh, you could rely on um, acting under the authority of a court order um, in some way. So there were various defenses or authorities that could be um, available to someone in the case of a, um, a homicide of some kind. Um, under this act, you don't need any to rely on any of those things because the act itself authorizes uh, the killing of the person. Okay, and um, you say on any view of the matter, this is a legal reform of great significance. No argument there. Understandably, it's also been a matter of division and debate in the New Zealand community. So, where, where um, there was obviously division and debate in the run up to it, and you know there were the, the pro and, and the anti. So. How does this thing work uh, in, in practical reality? Um, and what does it cover? I mean, terminally ill, we, we can imagine that, you know, um, suffering and all of that. But is it wider and deeper than that? Right. Well, in um, if you are following the points in, the, in that paper, and if you look at Section 4, I set out the uh, eligibility requirements, and they became quite well known, I think, but not necessarily all that well understood in, in some respects. First is that the person, uh, we'll call the person the patient, must be at least 18 years of age. That's pretty straightforward. They must also be a New Zealand citizen or permanent resident. Again, that's straightforward. They must suffer from a terminal illness, that is likely to end their life within six months, well, that requires um, a bit of uh, prediction about the future, and uh, that in turn requires uh, an expert evaluation, a medical expert to evaluate that situation. Then we get a bit more um, complicated because the next uh, requirement is that the person must be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability. So going downhill and being in a very advanced state of going downhill. Um, and then the fifth one is experiencing unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tol tolerable. That That's um, a more subjective requirement. Um, uh, especially the part about it cannot be relieved in, in a manner that the person considers tolerable. And what is unbearable suffering? And who's the judge of what is unbearable suffering? And then finally, um, the last requirement is that the person must be competent to make an informed decision about assisted dying. Well, um, that requires a uh, 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 expert evaluation again from a medical person and uh, often a psychiatrist. So unbearable. That's not necessarily physical. Uh, that's a very good point. It's uh, uh, an issue that's dealt with in in my paper. Um, 
there's a, a distinction between unbearable physical suffering and unbearable mental suffering, and uh, the act doesn't uh, answer the question of which of those uh, interpretations should apply. So that's something that is uh, left open, and obviously some medical practitioners will treat it in a narrow, give it a narrow interpretation, and others might give it a, a broader interpretation. Okay, so I'm imagining a scenario: eighteen-year-old, um, or, or in that young age range above the threshold, is uh, struggling with life, and we all know the the problems that that young people can have these days. Finds it unbearable. Uh, um, has a I don't know practitioner, um, whoever it is. That that agrees with them or or supports that. Could, does that open a can of worms right there? Well, it does um, because um, the patient, a, a, a patient who's determined to get the result they want, might go expert shopping and uh, try to find someone who takes the more liberal approach. And the uh, medical practitioner might, who who is approached, might say, well, I'm not really concerned about whether it's physical or mental. Uh, If you're suffering um, mentally, that that comes within my assessment of unbearable suffering, and therefore I'm going to um, tick that particular box. For example, someone who might be considering or has attempted suicide even more than once, could make a case to a sympathetic ear that this is unbearable. Yes, well, in, in the in the paper, um, if you look at 5.2, sensitive people might consider having a, se- a severe migraine to be unbearable. <laughs> More stoic individuals might feel able to endure levels of pain or discomfort that would cause most of us to wilt. Whether a person is experiencing suffering, and if so, whether such suffering is unbearable, are inherently subjective matters. Now, that is, I think, the the, the point that you're mm. trying to get at here. So, why leave it loose, given the gravity of of the outcome of of this at the uh, end point? Why would it be that loose? Do you think? Well, I think the people who drafted the legislation were uh, favourably disposed towards a liberal approach to this kind of issue. And they've drafted the legislation in a way that is not particularly tight or rigorous, and this is one example of that lack of rigour in the in the legislation. Um, what I've said is that having made the point about um, suffering being inherently subjective, uh, I've said to make matters even more difficult, there is no express statutory requirement for suffering to be of a physical character. In other words, mental or emotional anguish could potentially be sufficient to satisfy the unbearable suffering criterion even in the absence of physical pain. And I've said it's unclear at present whether as a matter of law this more liberal interpretation is correct. Well, the problem about getting a 
ruling on law is that all of these things happen in a very confidential um, in confidential circumstances, and it's unlikely that um, those situations are going to get before the courts for a ruling to be made on which interpretation is correct. So, as you say, it's been drafted in a loose fashion, and that's unlikely to um, be clarified anytime soon. It seems um, surprising to me, and what do I know, that that you would be that loose because um, kind of common sense tells you the variability of of the condition, the human condition, that there's great potential for, um, and and if everything's confidential and we don't know really how it's going, there's there's quite a bit of potential for this. And I've heard, you know, in, in Canada, I don't know how, how how true it is, but but this is a phenomenon that's occurring in Canada where where people are sort of ending their life through non-physical, unbearable, non-physical uh, suffering. Yes, well, I, I don't uh, know enough about Canada to comment, but it it is a very broad uh, concept that we have uh, in our legislation. And um, the point is that um, uh, mental suffering is unable to be judged by anyone uh, outside the um, the mind of the the person the patient um, there may be some assessments that can be done but um, it really is very subjective and if there's no requirement for even a, a little bit of physical pain um, it's the whole thing is 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 completely subjective and so there is, however, um, uh, a provision in the Act which uh, uh, excludes some um, uh, uh, some components uh, uh, or some categories. So, for example, um, in uh, if you scroll down to my section seven, I deal with conditions that do not constitute eligibility. Um, and I say that there's um, one of the sections provides a modest degree of clarification by providing that some conditions do not of themselves constitute eligibility for assisted dying, and the specified conditions are mental disorders, mental illness, disability of any kind, and advanced age. So a mental disorder or mental illness will not of itself um, constitute eligibility for assisted dying. Now, um, that's important, um, uh, but um, it, it still leaves open um, the possibility that the person might say, well, uh, I am just um, uh, facing a, a kind of mental torture. Um, I'm suffering mentally and um, uh, I, I'm also I also have a physical illness, and it's the combination of those two things that is causing me to have unbearable suffering. So that although there is a um, uh, a safeguard there of sorts, it's possibly not a very effective one. And also, we have to think, don't we, the, the sort of the modern climate now with social media and the um, well, mental stress, emotional stress, 
and uh, some of the things we hear about that um, that generates could put a lot of people in this unbearable psychological category. Um, do you think yeah, that's well, been it, thought it, about it, as well here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there are developments in society which have come to the surface even over the last two or three years with COVID and floods and all sorts of things. Um, and there's also the, the social phenomenon of bullying um, and pressure um, from social media. Um, if you get a person who has some illness, well, they have to have a terminal illness, uh, which is going to end their life in six months. But there could be a combination of factors um, affecting that person, which go into the mix in terms of unbearable suffering. So it, it's a very tricky area and um, just illustrates the difficulty of getting a clear um, picture of whether or not it's justified to end a person's life. Um, because very obviously, this um, once once that's happened, there is no way of undoing a wrong result. The confidentiality that surrounds it, is that healthy for a society? Because how are we ever going to know? Well, it's it's healthy for the person it, uh, who is genuinely eligible and has made a genuine decision to end their own life um, because for that all to be carried out in the glare of pub, um, publicity um, would would stultify the whole process and would undermine the ability of the person to get the benefit that the act is intended to provide. Um, in saying that, I'm not siding uh, one way or the other with um, the policy of the of the act. I'm just it's just an an observation of really the obvious, which is that um, the person a person who is going to go through this process needs privacy and confidentiality. But at the same time, the public interest in uh, protecting human life, which has been part of pretty much every legal system for thousands, hundreds or thousands of years, um, isn't um, satisfied very well in that situation because there is no, no real accountability. And it, it's, it's a... A formidable difficulty that the drafters of the legislation uh, will have faced. Um, and they've gone for the more liberal approach, they've gone for the more privacy based approach. Um, and that's the policy that's been followed through and has been enacted. So that's just what we have to live with. But it, it, it is, it does create a serious limitation in relation to ac accountability and whether people have uh, made free decisions without pressure, etc. And I'm speaking with Grant Ellingworth, KC. You may or may not know about this, but just in looking at the story, I noted that the Ministry of Health um, had to review the operation of this Act within three years of it coming into force. So that's what last year, 2022. Uh, including considering whether any amendments to this Act or any other enactment are necessary or desirable and making recommendations to the Minister of Health based on these findings. Have you heard of anything coming out of any review, um, uh, the status of that? Look, to be honest, um, 
after I finished writing this paper, um, I thought, my job is done here. <laughs> and Never done. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really um, uh, followed closely development since that paper was de delivered. My understanding is that that review process is uh, underway, but I may be wrong about that. Okay. All right. So the legal community, you and the legal community, um, what are you saying between yourselves about this? What needs to happen to tighten up the loopholes, the loose parts of it? And and if it were up to you, how, how would you do that? What, how would you go about that? Right. Well, the starting point, um, as I've tried to explain it near the beginning of the paper, is that we have a fundamental right Everyone in New Zealand has a fundamental right to life, uh, and that's a right that is affirmed under the Bill of Rights Act, along with uh, many other fundamentally important uh, free rights and freedoms. Um, the government of New Zealand has an obligation to protect life, to protect human life, and, and that's pretty obvious from the fact that um, you know, when someone gets uh, is, gets killed um, uh, in, circum in suspicious circumstances, um, the police come out, um, thorough investigations are undertaken, the coroner is involved. We have a whole system um, that is designed to uphold the right to life and to ensure that any loss of life that is not lawful um, is dealt with in uh, accordance with legal procedures. Um, the, the duty of government to protect human life has, has been, and to protect the citizen, has been uh, acknowledged under our law and English law uh, that we inherited um, for hundreds of years, going back to the 1600s and, um, and perhaps even further. So the question is, do we have a system here that is fit for purpose or are there gaps or loopholes or um, fuzzy areas that need to be um, um, need to be tightened up? Now, my view from the beginning is that there are some very strange, aspects to this legislation. Um, this is not coming out of a personal um, uh, religious or philosophical view. It is simply my view as a lawyer looking at an, an act which deals with this vitally important question of the right to life. Does it is it fit for purpose? Does it do the job properly? And my view is that um, it is not a well-drafted piece of legislation there are some there are some good parts uh, but there are also some uh, serious weaknesses and um, I hope that they will be um, those areas of the the legislation will be improved uh, in the in the review that you've spoken about do we know how many people have well taken advantage is not the right word but utilized um, this this law change 
since it came into being. Do we know how many people have have um, had assisted dying? Are there statistics published? Um, I did read that um, figure some uh, time ago, um, but I can't give you the, I can't remember the, the figure that I read and it will have changed by now, but I understand that it may be um, on the Ministry of Health website. All right, we can go and have a look. Okay. Uh, I mean, should, should should the public be, you know, debating this, talking about this more? I haven't heard anything. You know, no one said a thing. Well, the, the problem with public debate on this issue is that it tends to be um, focused on the policy, at, at policy level, rather than uh, the details of how things get carried out. Um, and so uh, the ordinary person is is going to be asked, should I, should the, should you have a choice about ending your life if you're really sick and suffering? Um, and if you put it in those simple terms, uh, a lot of people are going to say, yes, you should have a choice. I'm in favour of freedom of choice, and I think you should have a choice when you get into that serious into that state of serious suffering near the end of your life. Um, why shouldn't you be able to uh, cut that suffering short? You should you should have a choice about it. Now, if you look at things at that level, um, you get one answer. But if um, you have someone who is going to take the matter or look at the matter in more detail and try to be more accurate about it, then it comes down to a question of well, what is the process for this? Um, is the person uh, going to the, the 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 patient going to be protected from pressure or coercion? Uh, and are there adequate safeguards built into the uh, into the act to to achieve that? Uh, and um, uh, what is how efficient? are the means by which the person is going, person's life is going to be ended. Um, we hear stories about uh, how in the United States when people are on death row and come to the point of execution where things go wrong um, and where suffering, uh, uh, incredible suffering occurs as a result of uh, false steps being taken. Uh, how do we protect people from that in this situation? So... Everything depends on the question that you ask. If you if you ask the simple, I want to have a choice question, you'll get one answer. If you uh, put the question in another way, um, how do you feel about someone being exposed to um, this process when they might have been pressured into it? Of course, you're going to get a different answer. And uh, the problem is that the level of debate uh, that occurred at the time when this act was not yet passed um, tended to be at the policy level. Um, in other words, people were voting for for the idea rather than the detailed um, statutory provision. And to be frank, it's very very difficult to get people to look at the at the detail. They simply want to um, make a, a decision about the policy because they're in favour or they're not in favour. Uh, but I have had. Uh, many people tell me that um, although they might be in favour, they ha as a result of the, the the debate that 
I and other lawyers tried to facilitate, um, they ended up having doubts about uh, what, whether this was the right solution and they voted against it. So in the end, um, that we know what happened, we know what the result was, but whether it's the right res result and whether the act uh, is uh, appropriate in, in its detail is an issue that we still need to consider on an ongoing basis. Just thinking about the age, I mean, I've had three kids that are all grown up now. I know what 18-year-olds can be like. Um, they're not fully developed. They're not fully grown. They, they do have their problems, and that, that is the the age of which of eligibility, I guess you'd, you'd call it. Um, do you think, um, or just opinion here, it's wise to have, and I get why it's 18, because they're, you, know, you can vote when you're 18 and all sorts of things you can do when you're 18, but this is this is in another league, this sort of decision-making. Um, is that too arbitrary? And I take it once you've reached that age, it doesn't matter what your family or your parents think, um, they really don't have a say. Is that correct? Well, it's not quite correct. Um, the um, First of all, um, there is debate about whether 18 is the appropriate age, and some people want that brought down to 16. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so, um, but, you know, there's a, for me personally, in my view, there is a big difference between a 16, the, the, the average 16 year old and the average 18 year old. And um, I would um, be reluctant to, to see the age um, limit brought down to 16. Um, but your question really um, uh, relates to whether the family have a say, and, and that would apply really at any age. Um, it could apply for an 18-year-old, but it could also apply for an 80-year-old um, who is fragile. Um, and so what role does, does, does the family have? Um, now, this takes us to um, a part of the, the Act, uh, Section 11, which is the process that, that um, the doctor who receives the request for assisted dying is required to take. Uh, and there's a there are, is a series of steps um, that uh, are required under section 11 um, and one of the things that the um, the doctor and there's a whole series of things but after, after taking all those steps um, it is said the doctor must then do their best to ensure that the person has expressed their wish to receive assisted dying free from pressure from any other person by doing two things. The first is conferring with other health practitioners who are in regular contact with the person. And second, conferring with members of the person's family approved by the person. So, after taking a number of steps that relate to the, the patient, the doctor then has to do their best uh, to ensure that the person has expressed their wish to receive assisted dying free from pressure. And there are two things to be done in that respect. 
confer with other health practitioners and confer with members of the person's family. Now, and those family members must be approved by the person. Uh, now, in the paper, I'm not going to go through it all, but um, it'll be pretty obvious to you that um, there are problems with um, that process providing an adequate safeguard um, to ensure that pe the person has not been pressure, been subjected to pressure from others. Um, uh, and, and it's a very weak safeguard in my view. Again, you could go shopping, like you said earlier, for what family members who who are with you and exclude the ones that had a, a, another view. It's also putting a huge amount of power, isn't it, into the hands of doctors, medical professionals that that really weren't part of their 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 job description historically. Well, yes, um, doctors do have the ability to. Um, exercise a conscientious objection to being involved in the process, um, but that really is passes the buck to someone else. Um, and um, one of the points that I've tried to make in the paper is that um, the relationship between the doctor and the patient uh, could be a long-standing one. It could be a situation where the, doc this, the, the doctor... Uh, has been the medical practitioner for the person um, for many years. But equally, it could be a very short um, relationship. It could be one that's only existed for the last 10 minutes um, because the, the patient has come in and has um, formed a, a new relationship with a new doctor and, and, and has said as their first request, I want to receive assisted dying. And they have no knowledge of the, the history of the person. Obviously, a family GP who's seen the whole family over years kind of get a, gets a feel for, you know, where they've come from, uh, how they've got to where they are now. You'd, you'd want that, wouldn't you? You'd really want that there mm -hmm. rather than coming down in the last shower 10 minutes ago. It, it's, it's not a requirement of the... Uh, should it be? Do you think it should be? Well, as soon as you start... A safeguard. Yeah, well, as soon as you start to require that, that you know that there's been a a um, relationship between the doctor and the patient for you know a year or two years, or where do you draw the line? Um, it's just a part of the conundrum that lies behind this whole legislation. That this is not an easy thing to to deal with, um, and the que the question of coercion is particularly difficult um, and it and the the real issue in relation to assessing coercion has been ducked in this statute because as you can see from what we just looked at doing a doctor doing their best to ensure that the person has expressed their wish to receive assisted dying free from pressure from any other person um, if that if that were the end of the, the sentence, um, uh, the doctor would then have a very, very onerous task to fulfill. So it's been simplified by saying that that doing their best um, relates to only two things, conferring with other health practitioners. Well, there might not be any um, health, other health practitioners. And, who, and who would they be anyway? What, the nurse? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. 
and then conferring with members of the person's family approved by the person. Well, if no one's approved, you can't talk to the members of the family. So the, the safeguard um, could be completely illusory um, and essentially non-existent. Um, there is another provision in, in the Act which um, um, provides a, a safeguard, which is that after going through all the hoops, um, which I've, I've set out in the paper, um, the, um, uh, there is a provision which um, says um, uh, Section 24 of the Act talks about suspicion of pressure. And it says, if at any time either the doctor or the nurse suspects on reasonable grounds that the patient is not expressing their wish to receive assisted dying free from pressure from any other person, the medical practitioner or the nurse practitioner must take no further action under the Act to assist the person in exercising the option of receiving assisted dying. So there is a mandatory requirement to stop the process if there is a suspicion on reasonable grounds uh, that the person is, is acting under pressure. Um, but the, when you, and that, that sounds great, it sounds like a wonderful safeguard. But when you go into the, when, when you look at how that would actually work in practice and how it may be working in practice even, uh, even as we speak, um, is, is it, is it a, a safeguard that can really work um, in the real world? And the answer is, well, um, there are only two ways in which reasonable suspicions could arise. One is if the patient blurts out something, such as um, my son told me I should do this because it'll save the family from um, uh, having to pay for my medical expenses for the next um, several months. Um, you know, something like that is blurted out. Um, which you know could happen, but um, probably unlikely. And then the other option is that a family member um, says something to the doctor or the nurse um, to the effect that someone has been applying pressure. Um, there is no requirement in the Act for the doctor to ask the patient a, a, a direct question. Have you been subjected to any pressure by anyone else to make this, this to make this request? It just seems inexplicable to me that that um, obligation has not been imposed on the doctor or the nurse or wh whoever's dealing with the person. Why? Why? Uh, why is there no requirement to say um, or to or to write on one of the many forms that um, are required under the Act? Have, uh, have you been subjected to any pressure? And um, if the person has, um, they might still say no because of the pressure. But at that point, you know, they might be, they might not be prepared to tell a lie about it if they were asked the direct question. That, that's such an obvious, obvious first question. You would think so, but for it's... any diligent, caring person, that would be my first question. Yeah. One of them. There's no require. There's no nothing to prevent a doctor from asking that question. So the doctor could, using common sense, uh, ask that question. 
So I'm not suggesting that, that there's anything to stop that happening, but there's no requirement for it to happen. Mm. And because we're dealing with uh, someone's life being brought to an end um, sooner than uh, uh, under natural causes, you would think, well, surely that's a question that should be asked. It's so passive, isn't it? It is passive, and um, it's inappropriately lacking in a proactive approach to the question of uh, coercion and pressure. Do you think, just to sum up, do you think it's possible to tighten all everything that we've been talking about up to some level that you would be satisfied, or is it so subjective and 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 what we're talking about is so difficult to define in reality that it, it actually isn't possible to tighten it up. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that in some areas it is clearly possible for the legislation to be tightened up. And the point that we've just been discussing is an, ex an obvious example. It could uh, a requirement could be inserted for uh, the person to sign a form to say that they have not been subjected to any pressure or intimidation uh, uh, or coercion, like some sort of affidavit level. It, it wouldn't have to an affidavit. The only difference between a statement and an affidavit is that the the affidavit is sworn before uh, an authorized person. Um, and you could go to that extent, um, uh, although it would it, it it would be in the form of what's called a statutory declaration uh, rather than an affidavit. Um, just being a bit technical for a moment, <laughs> but um, it wouldn't necessarily have to even be that. It it could just be a simple statement signed by the person and witnessed by the medical practitioner to the effect, no, I have not been subjected to any pressure. Now, some people, um, if they have been protect, uh, subjected to pressure, might choose to lie about it and say, no, when in fact they have. But other people coming to the end of, of their uh, um, life might not want to um, tell a lie uh, about what has, has been happening, and it might just flush out the, uh, the odd situation where there has been coercion or pressure. Yeah, and they take responsibility for that, right? So they've yeah. had the opportunity, and um, however they respond to that is up to them, but they've had the opportunity and it's been done. Correct. Um, but there are other areas, um, such as the ones we were discussing earlier, concerning unbearable suffering, um, in which uh, it is difficult um, to get out of the problem that, that the criterion in question uh, requires um, essentially a subjective um, evaluation from the person concerned and how you tighten that up is difficult. But the distinction we discussed about whether unbearable suffering needs to be physical or can be mental, um, you know, that could be tightened up, for example. So I think there are quite a number of areas where um, there can be improvements. Um, and in particular, the, the, the thing which I uh, find very difficult in the, in the way this statute is drafted is that there's a whole process um, that the 
the doctor has to follow at, uh, on receiving a request um, for assisted dying, this is in section 11, they've got to go through a number of steps before the person is uh, assessed to be eligible. Um, and um, I'm not going to try to explain that in detail now, but um, anyone who uh, reads that paper will see that the the steps that have been set out in that section, which provides the guidance for the initial um, interview and what follows that uh, after the request for assisted dying, um, it's not very logical. Uh, it doesn't progress in a way that um, that makes sense. And I think it's it's actually a very awkward process for the medical practitioner to follow. Um, and it also fails to include any meaningful component uh, of safeguard safeguarding the person from from pressure. So I think there are a, a significant number of uh, areas in which the legislation could be improved, um, but there are some areas that um, uh, even with improvements still reflect the underlying conundrum that we are dealing here with a potentially vast exception to the um, a burden of the or the responsibility of government to protect individual human life. This might be a bit of a um, out there um, question, but uh, a couple of days ago, I, I interviewed a, a surgeon down in Christchurch who's very concerned about the resourcing of the hospitals, uh, and they're making essentially life and death decisions week by week on who should be operated on for cancer or not, because only one theatre is operating, not three. And there's been a contraction of the capability of services. And with things like cancer, uh, stage four, you're, you're dealing with people who are possibly in close to or crossing over into a terminal state, right, of, of in their health. Now, is there anything in the way and what we've been discussing to stop this being a kind of safety valve to deal with um the cases that these surgeons are now deciding on, which they never thought they'd have to do in the way they're doing it, um, that the system, let's say, could start to encourage these these choices for people to relieve the pressure, the problem. You know, you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying, and and that's um, a very important uh, point, but it is dealt with. Uh, in the in the legislation, um, so there's a provision, and I'm just um, flicking through uh, the um, paper to see. I just can't pick it up at the moment. I have dealt with it in the paper, but mm -hmm. it, there's, a, there's a provision which um, pro prohibits a medical practitioner from suggesting that the solution is um, uh, to to employ the end of life choice act it, it cannot um, it must not come from a suggestion from the the medical practitioner um, there are yeah so that that's the safeguard that's been built in to to try to ensure that that doesn't happen 
What a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and, and going through those points. Boy, I feel like I know so much more than I did before. In fact, I, I was kind of in the dark. I, you know, I knew the, you know, the, the sort of amorphous bit, but uh, the detail is is quite stunning. For those who want to read through that paper, I, I didn't ask you before, but I'm wondering, is it, a, is it easily available? Is it online? They can sort of go to a link and, and read it? Uh, no, it's not available online. It was presented uh, to a seminar uh, run by the Auckland District Law Society um, back in 2021. Um, but um, I would be happy to to make it available by emailing a copy to anyone who, who wants it so they could simply uh, send me an email and I'll reply with a copy of the paper. I retained copyright, carefully retained copyright in the Fair paper. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I'm, I'm allowed to give it to, to whoever I want. And um, if someone wants um, to read the detail, then I'm happy to provide it. Well, uh, this will go up for replay, so maybe in the copy that goes with the uh, replay listing, we can um, put in that email address if you're if you're happy to do that. Yes, um, uh, if if you um, if you wanted to make it available online, mm -hmm. um, then uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about how that could be done. Okay, well, we can have a conversation about that. What was, by the way, the reaction to that presentation of yours? How did uh, it go down? Look, there's a lot of water, quite literally, gone under the bridge um, since then. Of course, yeah. Um, my house got flooded. Um, oh, literally. <laughs> uh, then got burgled. Oh, dear. Um, I then got COVID, gave COVID to my wife. Oh, crikey. Um, we, we, a lot's happened in the last few weeks, and um, I would be struggling to remember the um, I won't put you on the, the reactions of the audience. And a, a lot of a lot, a lot of the people were um, involved in that seminar online, so uh, right. I can't accurately answer that question at this distance from from the event. Well, I hope things have smoothed out a bit for you since since all those things have happened and, and to you. Casey Grant Illingworth, thank you for coming on our radio program and explaining all that. It was absolutely fascinating. We appreciate that. My pleasure. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.